Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is John Tierney. He's a contributing editor of City Journal and the author of The Panic Pandemic, the lead story in this summer's print edition of our quarterly magazine. John, thanks, as always, for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Brian. Uh, This is a terrific story, and I'd like to dive into it right away. Um, You you assert at the beginning of the essay that the American response to COVID-19, which you acknowledge has killed a lot of Americans, about one in 500, has in fact been more harmful than the virus itself. Uh, That's a striking claim. It's, uh, it's, you know, generated a lot of attention online, this piece. Uh, but let's look at the evidence for your, your argument. What was the nature, in your view, of the pandemic response in the U.S.? And what costs, uh, more specifically, in your view, has it imposed on the country? Well, it's, I think there's a good chance that in the long run, it is going to prove deadlier than the coronavirus. I did an earlier piece for City Journal, Death and Lockdowns, where I looked into the excess deaths last year. And a good percentage of them, um, in fact, by some estimates, uh, some more recent estimates, 40% of the deaths among people under 65 of the extra, of the excess deaths, of the deaths more than normal, were not due to COVID, and, and, but rather the effects of the lockdown, the missed cancer screenings, the missed the heart attacks that weren't treated, the fatal drug overdoses, uh, there were more fatal car accidents. So there were lots of immediately deadly effects of the lockdowns, and, and, and those effects are going to continue for years and years. Um, I've written about this. Scott Atlas has published some work, and, and some other economists have too, that, that when you cause such an enormous um, economic um, loss to people that, that that manifests itself later in, in in lower life expectancy when students lose that much education their life expectancy goes down so there have been calculations that in the long run the lockdowns will cause more years of life to be lost than the virus did but you know beyond that is just the incredible social harm that was done, children losing a year of school, a year of childhood in a way. They didn't get to play with other children, the people who didn't see their um, their grandparents, the, um, you know, people, uh, uh, there was worsening of cases of, of Alzheimer's and dementia because isolation really contributes to that. Um, it makes people more like, you know, more prone to die from that. And, and there was just a whole social disruption of, of so many people um, being put out of work um, uh, one in three people worldwide lost a job or a business during the lockdowns, and half saw their earnings drop. Um, and uh, the World Bank estimates that more than 100 million people have been pushed into extreme poverty. So, uh, I mean, we saw in the United States, you know, you know, very bad effects of the lockdowns, the businesses that went under, the, uh, the lives that were disrupted, the you know, the, the surging levels of anxiety and depression among people. But the worst consequences in many ways were felt in poor countries overseas because those people are more vulnerable, they're more uh, susceptible to economic downturns and, our, and, and the lockdowns that, that the industrialized world did. And, and in many ways, the United States was the leader in, in, in creating these and in pushing these lockdowns on the rest of the world just just wreaked enormous havoc with people's lives and I think did far more damage than the coronavirus did. And, 
And what makes it even more tragic is that we still don't have any evidence that the lockdowns actually saved any lives. Right. It's it's interesting. You know, it's interesting to think back to where the world was back in March 2020 uh, when the lockdowns were first imposed. You know, China shut its an entire city down, and and indeed after that, much much of the country. Um, you know, when when the outbreak was underway in Wuhan, Italy's healthcare system was overwhelmed. Uh, the exact properties of COVID-19, including its level of, of lethality, were then unknown. You know, suddenly case counts were rising here at home, though we had neither the tests to know uh, by how much nor any kind of real plan or coherent plan to avoid mass casualties. So there was much we didn't know back then when the lockdowns were first put in place. But the information we've learned since has, has in some ways cut in both directions. On the one hand, the disease caused by the virus really can kill people, especially those with uh, immunocompromised systems or, or the very elderly. But on the other hand, there's, there's not much evidence, as you just suggested, that the, the lockdowns have had any positive effect whatsoever. So if you, know, if you could go back in time to March 2020, uh, knowing what you know now, what would be your message for the leaders of the world and citizens in various countries? What information would you tell them in an effort to minimize pandemic deaths and uh, uh, preserve basic freedoms? I guess uh, the first message would be that, that classic principle, first do no harm before you engage in this really risky and unprecedented experiment of shutting down society. You should really... Um, think about it, ask what evidence there is for it, and very carefully monitor the effects to see what it's doing. Um, I can understand why when we saw those, those images from Italy, when no one really knew much about the virus, it did make a certain amount of sense to say 15 days to slow the spread because there was this fear that hospitals were just about to be overwhelmed. Um, we saw those images in Italy and in New York City. But you know, in March and April of last year, and I wrote about this in City Journal, it was clear you know, that infections in New York City, which is, of course, one of the hardest hit spots in the world and which mishandled it in so many ways. But in, infections here peaked before Governor Cuomo announced the lockdown. So and, 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 that, and people could see that in April. So once you saw I mean, it was a deadly virus, but pandemics do run their, you know, they do run in these cycles. And, and that had already started before the lockdown. And yet it was just continued for, you know, the rest of the year, we kept locking things down. So, so I think also that, you know, the leaders also have to recognize, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that, that, that they made, like Pomo said, I'm doing whatever the scientists tell me. And that became the mantra of follow the science. But, Specialists in one scientific discipline, you know, someone who knows a lot about infectious diseases, does not have the expertise to determine the best social policy. There are so many other considerations beyond simply stopping the spread of a virus. And they have a very narrow focus. You know, Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks on the White House, that was their job, was was to stop the spread of the disease. They were being judged at the daily press conferences by what's the latest death toll, what's the uh, latest case count. And they had a very limited perspective on, 
on the overall public health problem. And public health officials are supposed to not not obsess about one disease. They're supposed to look at the larger consequences. And yet that really was never done. There were no cost benefit. You know, there were a few people like Scott Atlas and the great Barrington scientist from, you know, from Harvard, um, Oxford and Stanford who were pointing these things out and, and just doing estimates showing, look, you're going to end up killing a lot of people with these lockdowns. But no one, you know, it, it became taboo to question them. And, and this sort of narrative set in that um, lockdowns were the consensus this untested strategy that had never, uh, that it was not recommended before the lockdown, you know, uh, before COVID and in the CDC's planning scenarios, uh, they envisioned certain steps for certain kinds of epidemics. And for the most extreme pandemic in their planning scenario, one is as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918, which was killing young people and children, they did not envision extended school closures. They did not call for shutting down businesses. This was a totally novel strategy that was just adopted. And suddenly, once it happened, um, it just became this policy that couldn't be changed. I mean, I guess one thing we really did learn was that once you lock down, it's very hard to open up because, you know, once you start making this idea that, that we're going to beat this virus, we're going to get to zero COVID, we're going to stop it, then you can never open up again because, you know, viruses, uh, um, a new virus causes a lot of devastation, then it becomes endemic. It doesn't go away. You know, the flu doesn't go away. We we learn to live with it. And there are years where we have, you know, more than 100,000 people die from the flu, but we don't shut down society for that. And and we really did learn that once you shut down and once you instill so much fear in people, so much irrational fear, and you exaggerate the danger of it, it's very hard to to open back up again. Yeah, walking this back becomes extremely difficult. You know, you, you mentioned in your essay, Florida is a state that uh, generally resisted mass lockdowns and yet did pretty well when compared with um, other American states when you're looking at COVID deaths, cases, and uh, keeping the health care system functioning. Uh, what about some of the countries that have offered similar examples, uh, Sweden, for example? Right. Sweden was criticized early on because it was doing worse than its neighbors, Finland and Norway, although it wasn't doing worse than the UK and other things. Um, Sweden did, there were some reasons why Sweden did worse than its neighbors, Finland and Norway. But what people have missed in that argument is that over the long haul, Sweden has done a little better than the European average in COVID mortality. And Finland and Norway have done better than Sweden, but they have followed policies like Sweden's for most of the pandemic. They locked down um, more last spring and they closed their borders earlier, which might have been a good move. Um, but aside from that, those three countries have not had mask mandates. They're among the only countries in Europe that, uh, that don't mandate masks. They kept their schools open without masks, without social distancing, and they have done significantly better, each of them, than the rest of Europe when it comes to preventing um, excess deaths. In other words, you know, their levels of mortality compared to a normal year are, are significantly better than, than most countries in Europe. So in my argument is that basically lockdowns are medical treatment and no medical treatment or drug would be approved if 
it's not proven to do better than the control group. And, and, and effectively, Florida was the control group in this experiment in the United States. They, you know, they locked down briefly early, but then opened up. And, you know, you know, while most of the rest of the country was locking down and they did better, they their COVID, their age adjusted rate for COVID mortality was better than all but 10 other states. And so if the control group is um, is doing better, if, if the treatment group is dying off faster than the control group, you should stop the experiment. I mean, that you would do that in a clinical trial. And we had the same thing in Europe where Finland, Norway and Sweden were just about the, the least restrictive countries in Europe, and they did significantly better than the rest of Europe. So, I mean, that to me is the strongest evidence. You know, there have been a lot of studies of trying to gauge the effects of lockdown. And early on, there were some studies where they did these mathematical models projecting if we hadn't locked down, this would have happened. And these studies purported to, to, um, to find that lockdown saved lives. But these were very... Um, hypothetical situations. And a lot of the assumptions were quite dubious. In fact, they were severely criticized. And and I think, the, in, meanwhile, there have been lots of other studies comparing one country with, you know, one comparable country with another, one county with another that didn't lock down, states with other. And you generally see that the places that locked down did no better, and often they did much worse than, than places that uh, that did not lock down. So all, given all that evidence, I mean, no drug with this sort of track record, no medical treatment would ever be approved if, uh, if there was no evidence that it worked. This was such, you know, this is really the most dangerous experiment ever conducted. And it's and there are still people that want to continue doing it, despite the lack of evidence that the lockdowns did any good. Well, that, that really leads to the next question I had, which is, you know, we're, we're 16 months on in the pandemic. Um, you know, we've now got multiple vaccines that work, uh, that seem to minimize the chances of, of uh, severe illness and, and death from COVID, or in many cases, uh, you, you know, even uh, infection. Uh, they've been widely available for months. Uh, yet many public health authorities, especially in cities, are, are still clamoring for restrictions. Uh, L.A. just reimposed an indoor mask mandate, for example. So what explains this shift from lockdowns as a kind of, you know, short-term prudential measure to lockdowns as basically a new form of, of life, a permanent form of life? Well, um, well, I think that, you know, there are two causes for the panic that has happened. You know, one is simply that there is this, I mean, I call it the crisis crisis, this perpetual state of alarm. And, and we do that is fomented by journalists and by their favorite doomsayers, kind of assorted experts. And the people, you know, journalists always exaggerate crises. You know, many of the crises are really non-existent. And I think that's something else that I would have told, you know, politicians back in March of 2020, do not make policy based on worst case scenarios. Over and over again, as I, as I point out in the piece, you know, um, experts, you know, have exaggerated the dangers of epidemics. And, and that's partly, I, I mean, they have their own narrow focus and they, they do not want to risk under predicting, both because it looks bad if, they, if, if deaths happen that they didn't warn about. They basically cover themselves by giving some huge number and then they can claim, well, you know, see, we, 
we manage to avert that. And they also have, you know, these, there's a built-in incentive for, the, for what I call the crisis industry. Journalists have a built-in incentive to scare people, you know, with this, and they find, you know, the most pessimistic doomsayers to quote because it makes for better copy, it, um, it attracts more attention. And these doomsayers have their own motives for wanting to exaggerate a crisis. And if you're a specialist in epidemiology, declaring, exaggerating the danger of this crisis, you know, you suddenly get publicity, you get prestige, there's more funding is going to flow to you. Uh, the bigger the problem seems, the more money and more power you get for that. And I think to some extent, public health officials, they're human and, and they've just, it's become this kind of new, um, obsession to focus on this one disease. And as people have said, they've kept moving the goalpost. It was first, we just wanted to slow the spread. Now it's zero COVID. And I mean, it, it makes no sense to me that with so much of the population vaccinated, with everybody who's at risk, having had an opportunity to get a vaccine, why we should be locking down, why children should be wearing masks. And children never needed to wear masks. And, and why we should be doing this. And it's, it, it's, it's kind of the crisis industry trying to keep this thing going because it's, been, it's gotten them audiences, it's gotten them a lot of attention. And, and I think they hate to see the crisis ending. Well, another, you mentioned two reasons for this panic. The other in your essay is a very important theme of your work, uh, which is the politicization of scientific research. And that has manifested itself during the pandemic in uh, outright censorship of scientific debate. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about that and uh, what, you know, what we can conceivably do about it. Yeah, it, it's, um, I mean, I've called it the left's war on science and, and it's not new to COVID. I mean, you know, back in the 1920s, progressives dreamed of a world with expert social engineers directing society and using their great scientific knowledge and expertise to um, giving them you know, great powers to do this and um, and to do so without, you know, being accountable to voters or public opinion. And that has long been a dream of the left that we need to follow the science, which really means giving power you know, powers to uh, the public officials and leaders to impose solutions, you know, impose policies on people using science as a justification. And as the left has come to dominate more and more institutions, uh, universities, scientific journals, uh, scientific associations, uh, um, they've become political monocultures where the left, uh, where people are in any kind of monoculture, people become susceptible to groupthink and uh, and they also start silencing heretics instead of encouraging the kind of debate that, uh, that science has. They start thinking that their opinions are not merely, are not only the norm, but also truth. So, and we've seen this, you know, before COVID, we've seen that, that people who, who did research whose findings challenged progressive orthodoxy on things like IQ, on race, on family structure, um, on, on environmental issues like climate change, that the, the scientists who've done that, many of them very good scientists, you know, have been demonized, their work has been censored, 
Um, there have been, you know, you know, efforts to cut off any funding to them, even if it comes from private sources. So this has been going on for decades. You know, you know the, some of the early IQ researchers had to have armed guards when they went to give speeches because there was so much hostility. And we've seen this growing intolerance, this growing desire to shut down debate um, if it challenges leftist orthodoxy on these scientific issues. Because, and but then COVID came along, and it was really a perfect storm. Um, you know, Jane Fonda called it God's gift to the left because by exaggerating the danger of the virus, um, that hurt. There were short-term political benefits because it, it hurt Donald. I mean, hurt Donald Trump's uh, election chances, and and tanking the economy also hurt him too. Uh, his chances. So you had that immediate political. Um, payoff from playing up the, uh, the pandemic and shutting down the economy. But you also just had this just amazing opportunity to suddenly, you know, give scientists, these high priests, these expert social engineers, these vast new powers to, to shape society. And at the start of the pandemic, you know, when China did it, 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 I mean, it's, you know, one could imagine how an authoritarian society like like China can do this. It is centrally managed. But, and, uh, and Dr. Fauci said, well, he couldn't imagine locking down American cities. Americans won't stand for that. But he was wrong. You know, the, the crisis industry was so effective in scaring people that, that basically people willingly surrendered. I mean, there were majorities of, of, of people in opinion polls who were in favor of this, and they gave up their right to, you know, to work, to study, to go out to eat, to even leave their homes, to go to church. And it was, it was shocking to me to see how readily people gave up these liberties. And I think for the left, you know, you know there were progressives celebrating this and saying, boy, this is a great paradigm shift. We're away from this obsession with individual liberties. We now have to all make sacrifices for the common good under, you know, when led by the science, you know, um, uh, uh, the less version of the science. And so they, um, and they started calling this a blueprint for how to deal with, with climate change and other environmental issues. I, I, I do fear that, that the lockdowns are, are a dress rehearsal for what's, you know, for policies that will greatly curtail people's liberties in the name of, of climate change. Yeah, it's very troubling. You had a little bit of this, uh, City Journal had a little bit of this experience with the piece you did on the pandemic uh, a while back with some some uh, Facebook intervention. Uh, perhaps you want to describe that a little bit to inform readers about it. Yes, this is, um, I wrote about this in some earlier articles, but I also, this whole issue of, of shutting down scientific debate was, um, it, it's been going on for a while, but I, I'm shocked at how and how much it has escalated in the last few years, and particularly during this pandemic, where um, early on, nobody knew how how lethal the virus was. And some researchers at Stanford did one of the first good studies trying to, trying to gauge how many people were infected and how many of them were dying. And they just faced this enormous outcry, how dare you suggest that this is not... Um, and what they found was that, it w that the, the fatality rate was considerably lower than what the computer modelers were using, what, you know, what the media was screaming about. And, yet, and they were denounced for endangering lives, for, for, being, um, for being unethical. Stanford University uh, subjected them to this fact-finding in, you know, inquiry. Um, there were calls that they should be um, even ex um, 
drummed out of professional societies um, that this and to see this sort of suppression these were all I mean these were prominent very well respected scientists uh, who, who this happened to and it and that really set the tone where people became so afraid to question this lockdown narrative that you know Martin Caldor from Harvard one of the world's leading experts on, on infectious diseases says, you know, that there's always a certain amount of herd thinking in science, but he's never seen it reach this level, that most of the uh, the experts he talked to, the other scientists, were against lockdowns, but they were afraid to speak up. And, you know, we saw this in the article I write about how, you know, Scientific American, you know, published one of the, um, a welcome article trying to introduce some sanity to this by defending the Stanford researchers and saying, you know, we shouldn't politicize this research. We should try to really find out how dangerous this virus is uh, before we take steps. And then Scientific American promptly, you know, there was all this online fury and they basically just repudiated their own article. Um, so, you know, the level of fear of, of deviating from this consensus was was shocking. And of course, it's antithetical. Science is a process of discovering debate. You have to have these debates. And yet it became taboo to question uh, uh, the narrative. And uh, um, and that's a it's a frightening precedent that was set. And I, I guess the social media censorship is is basically an outgrowth of this attitude. Right. Right. And, and I mean, um they censored um, uh, the article that I wrote, which quoted a German study um, that reported harms to children from wearing masks. They, they were taking reports from, you know, I think 20,000 parents who reported lots of harms to their children from wearing masks. And this is not at all surprising. There's dozens of studies that have shown that wearing masks cause a lot of problems. You get less oxygen. It's harder to concentrate, harder to learn. Um, it interferes with socialization. You know, there are lots of documented harms from it, but Facebook uses this, this fact-checking group called um, Health Feedback or Science Feedback. It's a, um, and they labeled the study um, as being uh, not supported. And then my article was labeled on Facebook partly false simply because it accurately reported what this study found. And this was a study that was published in a peer-reviewed journal. There was nothing wrong with the study, but um, that was censored, and and that and I was just one of, of many who were the these scientists who 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 called for an alternative to lockdowns, this focused protection strategy in what in what was known as the Great Barrington Declaration. Google shadow banned you know their declaration so that you couldn't find it. All you'd find was criticism of it. Facebook shut down their page. You, you know when they Ron DeSantis who who fortunately for the people of Florida, he actually listened to these scientists, he consulted with them, and they were amazed that at, that whenever they mentioned a scientific study to them, that he'd already read it and sort of knew the methodology of it. It was astonishing to, to hear that about a politician. So, but he sat down um, uh, for a panel discussion with them and YouTube removed it because the scientists were saying, we don't think children should be wearing masks. and. So basically, Facebook was enforcing this narrative, and and so was Google and YouTube, which is it, it, and and I think it's one of the reasons that um, these bans continue, of course, and that kids are still wearing masks because people have not heard about the harms of wearing masks, and they haven't seen a balanced discussion of of how much good the, the masks do or or how little good they do. Thanks very much, John. It's a very important essay. It's called The Panic Pandemic, 
It's in our brand new summer issue. It's available online right now, that story. Uh, don't forget to check out that article and uh, John Tierney's work generally on the City Journal website. That's www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. You can find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, give us a ratings on iTunes. And thanks again, John Tierney. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.